everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. So there's this dad, his name is Frank Brennan, and he writes this modern-day parable for us today. He says this, It's movie night at our house. The pepperoni pizza has arrived, the orange comforter is on the floor, and Netflix is ready to stream. What to watch? My five-year-old daughter has me peruse the plethora of curated kids' movies, sparking no interest. (laughs) I get through the entire first carousel of content with no luck, then the second, and then the third, and she still hasn't chosen. I suggest eight different movies, but a fear of missing out on a better option fills my daughter with anxiety. The pizza is now starting to get cold as my nerves begin to wilt. Why does Netflix have so many choices for children? Why, after 30 minutes, do we finally have settle on a movie? Frozen, which she has already seen a hundred times. Every parent has experienced this, the Netflix effect, the barraging black hole of choices that never seem to satisfy. Experts call this choice paralysis and it's damaging our children's ability to make decisions. Can I do anything to help her? Have you ever had this experience in the modern world of today where you're looking at just so many choices, so many things, and it just kind of puts you in a spin cycle? This is actually, now it's, it's so common that there are so many studies out there that help pull this apart. One of them, the Nielsen survey, uh, the basic premise of this entire study found that people feel overwhelmed by too many choices. People paid to like get to that conclusion. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah, of course we do. They said their study was just honing in on streaming services like Netflix or like an Amazon Prime. And they said more than 90% of people say that they will either increase or that they will at least stay with the same amount of streaming services that they have over the next couple months. As of February of this last year, there are 817,000 unique programs or titles that are streaming, and that's up over 25% in the last three years. And all the streaming platforms are continuing to say, we're only going to continue to increase the choices. The percentage of people who subscribe to four or more streaming services has almost tripled in the past three years. So this is where it actually does make sense to pay for a study like this, because the premise of the study is people feel overwhelmed by too many choices. Over 90% of the people that they asked said, oh yeah, it's it's horrible. There's so many. Also, I'm going to be buying more in the next couple of years. Isn't that crazy? And then also, aren't you also sitting like, like me going, oh yeah, I'm kind of probably in that same category. I've been doing that for the last few years. How many streaming services do we have in the Krieger house? Too many. I'm embarrassed to share that with you. And in fact, this has been studied for years. Back in the 70s, there was a guy named Hicks, and he studied just this idea of what do options do to the human brain? Again, this is not rocket science, what he found out, but the more choices that you have, the longer it takes to arrive at a choice. I mean, again, not rocket science, but options, choices, this choice paralysis, this place that we tend to go. I love the way that Frank was just observing his daughter. Her anxiety starts to go up 
because she starts to worry that if I make this choice, I might miss something else, this fear of missing out, like keep scrolling, keep the carousel moving. What more could there be? And Hicks Law just continues to say, take more time, take more time. I need you to take more time. We're in a series uh, for the last several weeks on a book um, that was written by a guy uh, named John Mark Comer. The title of the book uh, is provocative enough. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And we've just slowly been going through it together as a church. I think the invitations that are here, his, his ability to be a student of the culture of today is fascinating. And in the chapter for this week, it's a chapter on this topic of simplicity. And watching him track through history how consumerism and how hurry has been affected and how simplicity can become a bit of an antidote, it's, it's just amazing. So you can check this out if you want. Um, one cool thing we're going to get on uh, towards the end, I just want you to know, too, there's a QR code on the back of your chairs that will take you right to this workbook. He, there's a workbook out of the book, and there's some really good, just really practical stuff. Today's a pretty practical week as we look through what's going on. But one thing I love about a chapter or a sermon or a morning where we just get to talk about simplicity is no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, or if you're like, I'm not even on a spiritual journey, I'm just checking things out. This is, a, this is one of those topics that's a, it's a human topic. And, and I love that. I hope that today you walk out no matter where you are thinking, man, that applies to me. And one thing I love about topics like this is that I would look at them and say, well, that's just practical theology. Comer says in, in this chapter in the book, he said, I, I was a Christian for a long time. I did not believe Jesus on his philosophy of things or money until I started living it out. And then it turns out that Jesus was right all along. And then it started to bring up the question, what else might Jesus be right about? No matter where you are, I hope that as we look at this person, Jesus, today and some of the things that he talked about, that these principles, as you try them on, that there would be things that you go, this is, this is true. What else might be true about this Jesus? So, what is simplicity? Uh, this in the church over time has been kind of a hilarious thing to study. Uh, very early on in the church, we're talking like first, second centuries, there were these groups that now we reflect back on and we call them the Desert Fathers. But these were folks who were just kind of, they were, they were just kicking the tires on. We've got this new idea called church, this new idea of following Jesus. What are we going to do? And asceticism was something that they tried on. And the basic idea was go off in the desert by yourself with nothing and just be with God. And so there's, there's flavors in Christianity, and this is not just in Christianity, but in spiritual world where if you want to have a spiritual experience, leave the world behind and go somewhere off by yourself into the forest. And, and I think there's something to that that's really good. But I think, too, as people who are living in the modern world of today, that can be an option for you that you hold today. But what would it look like to continue to live in the world and then still be able to practice simplicity. Jesus seemed to have this way where he, he wasn't just trying to get away from the world all the time. In fact, Jesus seemed to be wanting to live in the world all the time. But these desert fathers, that's one of the actions that they took. Uh, a modern-day ascetic, um, the great theologian Marie Kondo. Uh, you may be familiar with Marie Kondo. Um, 
she, she really has championed this idea of minimalism, which I think, and, and Comer would say in his book too, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic comparison of, are we talking about simplicity or minimalism? I, he would just say, minimalism is the modern day vernacular for simplicity. She is great at organization. She's great at clearing things out. She's great at making sure life is as simple as possible. And that's good. Um, I want to try and define a little bit more clearly in this kind of a context today. What do we mean when we say simplicity, though? Uh, Comer quotes a couple people in this book, and we're going to get away from Comer in just a second, but I thought this was really helpful. Joshua Becker, a writer, said this. Simplicity, it's the intentional promotion of the things that we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. That's simplicity. So the imitation as we look at these things is what would it look like for you to live more simply? Uh, another author said this, Richard Foster and Mark Scandrett said, said, simplicity, it's an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions towards what matters most. So you're catching this flavor a little bit. It's kind of like there's all this stuff in life. Simplicity is trying to remove all the stuff that gets in the way, and it's really asking the question, what matters the most? Let's put all of our time and our effort towards those things. And then Comer just says for himself, the goal isn't just to declutter your closet or garage, but to declutter your life. The whole goal is more freedom. So, this type of a topic can become really easily a self-help topic. Here's four practical ways to simplify your life, which would be fine. That would be really helpful. But I, I've just become so fond of this Jesus and the way that he lives. And there seems to be this invitation to watch him and to pay close attention to how he lived. Because if Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, he's the author of life. And if you have found yourself at all this week or in this season of life, wondering like, is this it? Surely there must be more. I think there's an invitation of this Jesus to say, hey, I wrote the book. Come watch me. I'll show you how to do it. Let me just share some things about the lifestyle that Jesus lived. Jesus was a teacher. And one of the things is he had he, these students that he was teaching. He was trying to grow them up in this way to live. And the first time that he sent them out, he was really clear with his instructions on what to say. But then he had these other instructions that were really funny. He said, you don't need to take a walking stick. You don't need to take an extra shirt. Essentially, just take the clothes on your back and go. That's what it takes to follow me. Just don't run around naked, essentially, is what he's saying. You just, you just need clothes. He seemed to roll this way himself. This is, this is just kind of the lifestyle he lived. And, and some of this is easy because if you're somebody who can multiply food, like you don't have to worry about that as much. And there was more going on to this Jesus than just that. He had ministry support in places that he went. Luke 8 records that there were these women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many other women who supported the ministry of Jesus. And you very distinctly get this idea that there was a financial support to what was going on. Jesus seemed to live this pretty transitory life. Based out, he was based out of Peter's home in Capernaum, as best we can tell, some of the time. But he would stay different places as he traveled around. 
We don't know if Jesus owned a home. We know that he had a family. We know that he had an ancestral home. But as far as the place where Jesus would put his stuff, we don't really get that from Scripture. And all the evidence would lead us to think he probably just didn't have all that much. At the Last Supper, when we get to hear this story, we see him apparently inviting himself over to somebody else's house to have dinner at their house. So he doesn't have a place of his own to invite people and practice that kind of hospitality. You just don't get the feeling that he had that much. And, and in fact, it shows up in his teaching often too. In Matthew 6, 25, he says this, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And again, as a teacher, particularly as a Jewish rabbi, you wouldn't say things that you weren't also living out yourself. This Jesus just seems to have such a simple kind of lifestyle. And once he meets this rich young man who has a lot, and they have a discussion about what does it look like to, to obey God, to love God, and the discussion ends with Jesus saying, man, you're doing fantastic. Okay, the next step, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. It's just a really interesting way to say, you want to be a student? You want to see what I'm about? That's the next step for that guy. And I think for us today, if we're going to hone in on like, what's one thing for us? One thing that like for every single one of us can be a place where we hang on to a teaching of Jesus or to something of Jesus it comes up in really one of the most simple places possible. Uh, one day, his students said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Matthew 6 records this prayer that Jesus gave them. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And it goes like this. Let me put it up on the screen. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we are forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to a time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Did you catch it? Like, it's, it's only a few lines. Jesus doesn't have this, like, crazy long prayer that he's trying to get everybody to remember. It's a couple sentences that if I think if this is the prayer that Jesus wants his students to memorize, he's packing it with the best of the best material. I don't know if you saw the line where Jesus is teaching his students to live and pray simply, but it was that line, give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need just for today. Help me trust what's here and that God's out there. Now, this is where it starts to get a little bit fun because that phrase, give us this day our daily bread, shows up three times in scripture. Before we jump into those it's important to know, I think Jesus for sure is pointing back to a story that happened in the Old Testament. It's a story about manna, this, this idea that bread would show up, that God was providing for his people. But when the Bible quotes itself, it's very much saying, pay attention. Like, I am going back. I want you to see context. I want this older story to help inform this new story that I'm telling. And so when give us this day our daily bread shows up three times in the Bible, it's really important that we look and go, where? And what is the context? What's going on there? What more might Jesus be teaching than just the words that are in that particular text? And the three places are this. One's in Matthew 6. One's in Luke. As Luke is recording the same story of Jesus teaching his disciples, his students to pray. And the third one is in the book of Proverbs. 
Proverbs chapter 30. And if you want to turn there now, this will kind of be our main text for the day. Proverbs 30, and we're just going to read three verses, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, Proverbs 30 is really funny. It's not one of the Proverbs written by Solomon. It's written by a guy named Augur. Um, so if you're looking for a name for an upcoming baby, there you go, Augur. Um, and this is what it records in Proverbs 30. The writer says this in a prayer to God. Two things I ask of you, do not deny them to me before I die. Remove far from me the falsehood of lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need or I shall be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I shall be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Jesus' students come to him and they say, how should we pray? Jesus says, well, here's a prayer. And when he lights on this line, give us today our daily bread, he's quoting direct words from Proverbs 30. And his students, who would have had Proverbs 30 memorized, would immediately have thought in that moment, give us this day our daily bread. Don't give me too much or I'll become full and I won't need God. And don't give me too little or else I might steal and dishonor God. There seemed to be this middle place that that this writer understands, like this is the right place to live out of. Uh, He would be quoted later by one of the best theologians of our day, the notorious B.I.G., Mo Money, Mo Problems. He understood this concept, and it violates our Western thinking of today because generally there's a sense in the West, particularly in the middle class, but I think everywhere, that says more. You've not had enough yet. Go get more. Find more. Do whatever you have to do to attain more. What did it mean to be full when this guy was writing? Maybe one of the questions you can begin asking yourself as we start to get a little bit more practical with this today is are you full? Do you have enough At what point do the scales tip and you go, man, I have so much. I have way more than I need. I might have so much that my need for God is becoming overshadowed by things. But it's interesting that Jesus would pick out this context. He's teaching his disciples to pray at a time in history that's just so much different than now. Uh, In the 1950s, house sizes were half as big as they are now, but families were twice as large. That's interesting. Why are homes so much bigger today if we frankly probably just don't need the space? And if we really want to dial it all the way back, uh, this is what a home would look like in the, in the time of Jesus. Um, and this is all fine and great. Uh, there's a place down low where the animals would hang out. You'd usually have a second level, one room where your entire family would sleep in one room. That's awesome. If your dad snores, that's a real bummer for the rest of the family. Sorry, kids. And then down at the bottom, this is actually the part that's fascinating to me. If you can't see this, uh, the bottom right corner, there's a picture of a double-wide trailer, a width of 24 feet and a length of 60 feet. A first-century home is about half that size. So Jesus is telling his students Ask for daily bread. Don't ask for too much. Don't ask for not, like, God, just give me what I need for today. And the context that they're receiving, that kind of a teaching in, is a context where they don't have a lot. And Jesus is still presenting this tension 
to them. Where will you live? Here's a real practical example from my life. If you're like me, sometimes you will open up an Amazon app on your phone, and one of your favorite buttons to push is called Today's Deals. Does anybody else do this? Maybe I'm just totally neurotic. This might just be me, but you all have stuff too. I'm sure of it. This is for sure one of mine. What am I looking for? I don't have anything that I need. The things on my shopping list I can take care of. What I am looking for is where can I get a deal out there? Is somebody selling something for cheap that maybe I could potentially use at some point, or at least it sounds interesting? What, what could possibly be out there? And I'll scroll. What am I looking for? I think I'm looking for the dopamine of a new toy. The thrill of opening a box. Another thing that maybe could make my life a little bit more easy. But if I start to even get under that, what am I looking for? What am I scrolling to find? I think what I'm really looking for is contentment. Will this new thing finally be the missing piece? Is this the thing I find my soul longing for? Will this be the thing that finally takes care of me? It's important to feel this sense of I need something, this sense of I'm missing something. That is one of the things that makes you incredibly human. And to numb that feeling is to selectively numb one of the questions that you need to sit with. When we feel that need ourselves, at best we're doomed to leave that need exactly as it's been. If I just buy more stuff and shove it into that hole thinking maybe this will be the thing, it's, it's not what you're looking for. And it's not what I'm looking for. At best, it's doomed to stay exactly where it's been. At worst, it makes that hole bigger as I keep trying to shove more stuff and more solutions and frankly, just more of my own desire down in there into a place where it simply cannot satisfy. And as we're walking through, you may be thinking, as I was a lot this week, this idea of simplicity, what does it have to do with hurry? I mean, just on the surface, it might seem a little bit disconnected. Jesus has this way, and he's saying, shoot for the middle of these two things. Isn't this just a teaching on possessions and money? How does hurry come into the picture here? Let me suggest a couple reasons why these are connected. Uh, in 1927, there was a journalist who was just making some observations about American culture. And he says this, a change has come over our democracy. It's called consumptionism. The American citizen's first importance to his country is now no longer that of a citizen, but that of a consumer. What does being a consumer do to hurry? Well, I think in one way, materialism turns people into objects. When life, when the things that I look for, when the things that I long for and get excited by are things, people turn into objects, or probably better said, dehumanized robots whose value is based on what they produce, and therefore the most productive and best, therefore, is the one who hurries the most. 
And that's not something that I just think about other people, but it's a worldview that I start to believe about myself. Why am I in such a hurry all the time? It's because I've got stuff to do and stuff to produce so that I can get more stuff. I think another way that these are connected is this idea of things and money. They, they comfort me. They're like a God, but to have this God, I must earn this God. This God makes me earn, earn based on how well I hurry. Here's another way that simplicity and hurry are connected. The more I have, the more I have to maintain. You don't have to have had kids to appreciate this idea, but have you ever seen a young couple pack to go on vacation with a baby? It's the worst thing. Like, you just, the whole time you're just like, they're there. It's going to be okay at some point. You have to take a crib. You have to take the thing that holds the baby. When you're breastfeeding the baby, you have to take the bottles, the bottle cleaner, the stuff that goes in the bottles. Like, you just, it's this entourage that by the end you're like, well, I guess we need a minivan now. That's how it happens, you guys. That's where you get there. It starts. And, and you just have to have so much stuff. And I remember as my, we, I'm the oldest of four in my family of origin, as my younger siblings started having babies and our kids were growing up, I just remember watching them roll into family vacations just harried and frazzled and being like, I understand. Yeah, that's, that's why I like whiskey. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so hard when you have a baby in tow. They require so much stuff. And begin to see part of that is this connection because when you have so many things, to take care of so many things, it takes you that much more time to get those things moving in the right direction. And then by the time you get there, you have less time, but then you have more things to do around those things. And man, babies are awesome. I think it's right that we take care of our children, just for the record. But I think one place where this goes off the rails is in my life, what am I shoving into the minivan of my life? What is taking me forever to get that on board so that I can get to the next place to get it all unpacked? At what point do you just go, man, you, you don't have to take that much stuff. Just simmer it down. How are these connected? I think for me, one of the things that hits the closest to home is that hurry points me to what I desire the most. If my own desires, like things or money, are the things that push me forward, then I will tend to hurry. But if it's what God desires, the things that he desires for me are rest and trust and joy and enjoyment. Those are simple things. Is my life driven by my desire or by God's desire for me? Those are different. And when I have stuff, when I fill my life with choices and options, not only do I quickly run out of time, but just like Frank noticed with his daughter, the amount of anxiety I invite into my life goes way up. So not only do I hurry because I'm always running out of time, but I'm also stressed while I'm doing it. And according to the study, I'll keep signing up to pay more to do this more. It's crazy. Simplicity if it's attached as a spiritual practice, really just keeps us in a worshipful posture. Does this mean that you should want to make less money? I don't know. I don't think so. 
Is there an exact idea of here's the exact mark that you should be hitting today as you walk out of the building? That I feel a little bit more comfortable answering. I don't think so. But I love that there's an invitation with Jesus, always. That no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, Jesus is the type of teacher who will come and sit next to you and say, hey, where are you today? Let me tell you about what the next step might be for you. So for the rest of my time with you this morning, we're now entering the classroom of Jesus. Where is he meeting you today in the life that you live with the things that you have and the money and the time and all of it? And how is he sidling up next to you today to say, hey, here's a next step for you. He's inviting a posture. What is he asking for? So, there's some practical ideas. And again, in this workbook, we're not, I mean, there's no money. We're not getting paid. I just think these are great ideas. And as somebody who wants you to be healthy in your own walk towards Jesus, I think this particular chapter could be life-changing if you would give it a shot. But some of the things he'll walk through are how do you simplify stuff in your life? He goes through, it's essentially a Marie Kondo exercise. Make five piles of things, stuff you're going to keep, stuff you're going to get rid of, stuff you're going to sell, stuff that you don't want. You're going you're to walk through this whole exercise and just start with your closet. Simplify your clothes. There are some amazing studies that have been done out there of what if you only had three options of clothing outfits in your wardrobe? What does that do to your brain? And the amount of health and space that it creates for people that eliminate so many options from their life and now just have simple choices. It is profound how much health it brings to a human brain. So you could start with stuff. Maybe that's an invitation that Jesus is saying, hey, let's go home today or sometime next week. Let's just look at the stuff and clean out some space for freedom. Maybe it's time, one of the things that he'll walk through in the workbook. What would it look like to create an ideal week where you just simplify the number of things that you do with your time or at least just get a handle on what those things are? What if you could trim those things down to create some more freedom? He talks about a budget. And this is one of those funny things. You're like, a budget? Really? Yeah, that's amazing. What if you could simplify the number of things that you choose to spend money on? You're just taking away options for things that you don't need to spend time thinking about. And then you're left with this massive problem of sitting on piles of money. <laughs> Good luck figuring that out. Uh, also, if you'd like to donate to Discovery. If, I'm just... um, one of the things he doesn't talk about, but man, this, this I think is like cookies on the bottom shelf. What would it look like to pull out your phone, if you have a smartphone, or a watch, if you have a smart watch, and to simplify the number of things that you see on that screen ever? One of the things I started doing at the beginning of this sermon series, I totally cleaned my watch out. All I can really see on my watch anymore is the time of day. It used to be that I could see how many texts have I missed, how many emails have I missed, how many steps have I taken today. I have gone to sleep at bed tonight, uh, bed at night, it might happen tonight, we'll see how it goes, where I'm like 10 calories away from my move goal, and I will be laying in bed doing this with my arm, just try, I'm a slave to a watch, what am I doing with myself? What if you just cleaned out the number of things that you have to distract you? And what if that was an invitation to more freedom? 
And then I think finally, whether you have children of your own or you live in a town where there's kids, which is everyone, how are you training children? How are you inviting them into a process, kind of like Frank is noticing with his daughter of, man, you live in a world that is filled with choices. You can continue to shove more and more choices onto your radar, buy more and more streaming services, download more apps on your phone so that when you're bored with one, you skip over to the other, and then you're just this hurried, frantic mess all the time. Or how do you train your children to go, and that's just not freedom. You're gonna be a hurried, anxious mess by the time you're in college, if you don't learn this idea called simplicity. I'm gonna bring out the band as I just wrap with one final note from Jesus. He has this, incre- this crazy, incredible story that he tells. Um, and it's a parable, but he talks about if you have a person who has what he calls an unclean spirit or a demon in them, and you cast that spirit out, that spirit will wander around in the desert looking for another place to go. But if it can't find another place, it will go back to its old haunt, is the language that it used in the NRSV, which I love. It'll go back to its old haunt. It'll come back to the person that it was originally in. And if there's still room in that person, it'll go find seven more friends, and they'll make that home in their person, and it will be worse for that person then than it was to begin with. There's a temptation that can come with simplicity. Fasting as a spiritual practice can quickly become a diet or just back to normal. Simplicity can become spring cleaning or just organizing. But the point of simplicity in what we've been talking about today is that you are simplifying to replace distraction and space in your life with something better. You are eliminating hurry to replace it with meaningful connection and freedom. Hicks Law says the more options you have to choose between, the less time you will have. So the invitation of Jesus today is to begin eliminating how many options you allow yourself in a given day so that you can have more time that can be used to enjoy the thing that you are ultimately desiring and often feel like you have no time to truly encounter. It's the God of the universe. He loves you like crazy. He is contentment and peace. He's the wholeness that you're looking for every minute of the day. He's the thing that we all intrinsically know that we're designed to live with and painfully feel the effects when we find ourselves living outside of him. What's the teacher teaching you today? What's the next invitation forward? Once upon a time, it was for a guy who thought, man, I've got everything nailed, and it seems he was doing a great job. And Jesus said, great, sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. It seems that there were these groups of women who at some point said, man, I'm sitting on piles of money. I could give this away to people who could put it to fantastic use. There's a guy named Augur, was looking around, he said, man, I don't want too much stuff. Get rid of it. I need enough like bread to live on for just today. Anything else may get in the way of me and God, and I don't want it. What's the teacher inviting you to today? In a moment, we're gonna stand and sing. Um, 
I hope that this is a time that's set aside, even if it's just a little bit, where it's just, it's between you and the God of the universe who loves you. And that as you feel the fullness of that and the goodness of that, that there's an invitation from him to just be like, hey, we could do this more often. Let's grab some time. And that you, as a son or a daughter, would say, man, I would love that. Let me go make some. So I invite you to stand and let's sing to this good God together.